Bible with you. There should be the white paperback Bibles at the edge of each bench. You can grab one of those and you can turn to um, page 568 and that will get you to Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. If you don't have a Bible, take that one home. That's our gift for you. We'd love for you to have that. Uh, When you walked in, you received a bulletin uh, that has something called a connect card on it. Uh, If you take a moment, just take a look at that, uh, fill it out, and and, uh, drop it uh, with either me or another leader at the table out uh, with all the refreshments and various goodies on it. You can drop off that connect card there. We'd love to find out a little bit about you and and get you connected with what God is up to here in our church family. Uh, There's also a space for prayer requests on there. We'd love to be able to pray for you this week. If you take a moment, fill that out. Let us know how we can pray for you. We'd count it an honor and a joy to be able to do that. Um, We're in the middle of a five-week sermon series called Here We Stand in celebration of the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And uh, what we're celebrating is that in the midst of Christian history, God turned the lives of individuals, of uh, of the entire church, and and of the entire world upside down uh, with the truth that sinners, rebels, weaklings like us are welcomed into the presence of God by his free grace alone, through our faith alone, in and because of Jesus Christ alone. And we saw a few weeks ago when we started that we know this through Scripture alone. We know that this is true because Scripture bears witness to this reality and, and testifies to the reality that God is a God of grace and forgiveness. And we saw last week that God rescues us and saves us and welcomes us for his glory alone. And this morning, we're going to start to look at the wonderful truth claim of grace alone. Uh, It's often referred to as solo gratia, grace alone, that God, by his one-way love, kindness, and favor, calls us from death to life, from slavery to sonship. And this morning, we're going to dig into Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, where we see that wonderful truth and unpack what we mean by sola gratia or grace alone. If you want to stand with me as we read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, let's listen with reverence and joy to the voice of our Lord, our Father, our Savior. This is what he says to us, church. And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, would you bless the the reading and the preaching of your word with the grace and power of your Holy Spirit? Would you pour out uh, 
riches and gifts on us now of assurance and peace and knowledge of you and comfort. Lord, and, and, and for those who, who are complacent and slothful, would you, would you give them the gift of vitality and vigor and life? And we know that, that all of that can be found in these words that we just read and saw. Lord, so would you use them to stir up trust and faith and hope and love within us and gratitude within us? God, would you help us to, to, to not um, be deaf? Let, let these, these truths not fall on deaf ears, but on ears that are open by the power of your spirit to receive the word, to hear your voice in these words, and to be transformed by the power of your grace and your gospel. Lord, we, we need you this morning, so would you let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Our Lord, our rock, our redeemer, in Jesus' name we pray to you. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, I am um, very privileged to be preaching on Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 this morning. Uh, I actually have some interesting uh, personal history with this particular text. Uh, this was actually, I think, the, the second or third text, scripture text, that I ever preached a sermon from. And uh, for the first few years of my Christian life, I actually struggled deeply with some of the truths revealed in this particular text, uh, and, 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 and I struggled a lot with the reality that, that salvation was by grace alone, and, and that I didn't bring anything to the table in my salvation except for the sin that made it necessary. Uh, in my pride and my arrogance, I wanted uh, so badly to hold on to at least some measure of initiative or responsibility for my salvation and redemption. And so when it came to reading texts like this, uh, wherein we see that we don't add to or initiate uh, our salvation, our redemption in any way whatsoever, but that salvation is a free gift of God's grace alone. My feet were kind of cut out from under me. But several months before I preached on this particular text, by God's grace, he had, he had opened my eyes and, and helped me to understand, and, 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 and not only understand, but to, to deeply treasure the, the truth revealed in this particular text. And instead of troubling me, words like Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 actually became a great source of comfort and confidence for me. I began to see that, that my need was so great. I, I began to see that my, my sin was so deep and so pervasive that, that if salvation was dependent on, upon me in any way whatsoever, if, it was, if, if salvation was dependent upon God for 99.99999% and, and dependent on me for the rest, that, that all would be lost and I would remain in my sin. I, I, my condition was that hopeless. I was that helpless. And so Ephesians 2 and other texts like it became a pillow on which I could lay my head and rest in the goodness and grace of God. And after I discovered this, I, I was so jazzed and invigorated. Uh, I was so, so pumped about, I was so excited about the truth revealed in this text that, that when uh, the church I was a part of at the time, they asked me to preach, I immediately went to Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 and said, I want to preach on this text. Without hesitation, I chose that text. And I accidentally ended up preaching for over 80 minutes that Sunday morning. Uh, for some reason, no one else was as jazzed as I was about, about what it said. Now, I'm not going to preach for 80 minutes here this morning. I'm really going to try hard not to preach for an hour and a half. But, but my hope and prayer is that, this, is that the truth that this text reveals to us this morning 
would put life in your bones like it did mine and like it has mine, that it would give you joy and freedom and peace of mind, knowing that, that even though there's nothing in you that deserves or earns or initiates God's love or acceptance, grace alone means that it's given to you freely nonetheless. This, this wonderful doctrine has given freedom and joy to countless men and women. Indeed, that freedom, that joy is what fueled uh, what we're celebrating here this morning, the Protestant Reformation that we're celebrating in this sermon series. It's what put a fire under leaders like Martin Luther, who we were introduced to several weeks ago, and to others like John Calvin and, and Lady Jane Grey and, and Martin Bucer and Philip Melanchthon and the rest of them. It's, it fueled them, it, it, it put a fire under them to get this news out, similar to how it fueled this fiery mission of the early church in the first several centuries. It, it, these men, these women, they were rocked by God's grace, and it lit a fire under them to turn the entire Western world upside down. I, I love this quote from uh, a pastor, Robert Capon, uh, about the good news of grace alone recovered in the Reformation. This is what he said. He said, the Reformation was a time when men went blind, staggering drunk because they discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace, bottle after bottle of pure distillate of Scripture, one sip of which would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. The word of the gospel, after all those centuries of trying to lift yourself into heaven by worrying about the perfection of your bootstraps, suddenly turned out to be a flat announcement that the saved were home before they started. Grace has to be drunk straight, no water, no ice, certainly no ginger ale, neither goodness nor badness, not the flowers that bloom in the spring of super spirituality could be allowed to enter the case. Straight grace without any admixture brings joy, it brings life, it brings freedom, it brings peace, and it brings radical transformation. And the same is still true for us here this morning. Grace alone can turn your world upside down in the best way, and I'm praying that it does. Now, there are two parts to this doctrine. First, we need to understand the bad news. We need to understand the bad news. This, this is the part I struggled so deeply with in the first few years of my Christian life, but, but it's necessary that we understand this because if we see the bad news clearly, then we see the, the, how good the good news really is. First, we see our great need, and then second, we see the good news. And so the big idea that we're working from this morning and that we're going to spend time meditating on is this. Because of our great need, grace alone is good news. Because of our great need, grace alone is good news. And we'll unpack that in two parts. First, the great need for grace alone. And second, the good news of grace alone. The great need, the good news. First, we need to understand our great need. Our text in Paul's letter to the Ephesians begins with saying, And you were dead and the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh and carrying out the desires of the body and the mind were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, I don't think Paul has ever been accused of having an overly optimistic view of human nature. Uh, while he certainly never reduces humanity to our sinfulness, Paul's understanding of nature is obviously very bleak and very dark. He begins with saying that we're, that we're dead. He says all who are outside of Christ are dead in their trespasses and sins. 
Uh, here, Paul's not speaking of a physical death, although that will come later for all of us, but he's speaking of sp- being spiritually dead, being dead in, uh, to God's promises, to God's will, being so blind and hostile and defiant to the beauty and goodness and glory of God that we are dead to him. Being dead in trespasses and sins means that we have no desire, we have no ability to please God or to live in fellowship with him. We have no desire, we have no ability in and of ourselves to know God or to love him. And understand, this is not just like like a sickness. You know, a lot of people in, in the medieval church viewed sin as like just a sickness, an illness in the soul. But, but Paul doesn't say that, that we're sick with trespasses and sins. He says that we are dead in trespasses and sins. You know, if you're sick, you can still do something. You can call the doctor. You can purchase medicine. You can rest and, and eat lots of uh, crackers and drink lots of orange juice and, and that sort of thing. You can, you can take care of yourself to some degree if you're sick and, and help yourself get better. But if you're dead in trespasses and sins, what does that mean? That means that you're dead. It means that there's no helping yourself. You're totally unable to do anything for yourself. Paul says that before Christ's rescue, this is who we are. This is not something you can remedy by adding some religious activity to your life. This is not something that you can remedy by by adding a, a, a spice of morality to your life. You know, you think of that movie, Weekend at Bernie's, where those, those two idiots, they, they pretend that their boss, Bernie, is, is alive, and they put sunglasses on him, they sit him up in chairs and, and let, him to do, let him do fun activities with them, pretend he's doing fun things with them. And that's what it's like when we try to cover up the stench of our death with morality and religious activity. But it doesn't work because apart from Christ, we are dead in trespasses and sins. And Paul goes on to say that not only are we dead in sin, we're dominated by spiritual forces of evil. He says that we are followers of the prince of the power of the air. Literally, what he's saying there, that's, that's language of slavery. He's saying that we are slaves of Satan. We're Satanists apart from the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Not at all meaning that everyone who is outside of Christ is uh, involved with the occult or breaks into cemeteries and sp- spray paints uh, pentagrams all over everything. That's not what Paul is saying here, but he's saying that, that all of us, as long as we are outside of Christ, whether we're moral or not moral, whether, whether we're, we're religious or not, or whether we're respectable, upstanding members of society, or, or, or whatever else, that we are satanic. From the most respectable, upstanding members of society to the most depraved de- degenerates, apart from Christ, all are sons of disobedience and children of wrath followers of Satan. That's what Paul is saying here. We are slaves of Satan. What that means, friends, is that like Satan, we're always seeking to exalt ourselves at God's expense and at the expense of others. We're always seeking to exalt ourselves to the place that only God deserves. That whatever circumstances we find ourselves in and whoever it is that we're dealing with, whether it be our spouse, our children, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, the bottom line that is, is, is always the underlying question for us is how is this going to serve me? How am I going to be exalted here? How, are people going to see what a great person I am? Are, are, are people, are, 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 how am I going to benefit from this situation or this person at their expense? That's the underlying motivation. If we're honest, that's the underlying question just beneath the surface in every circumstance, in, in, in every interaction. We want to be glorified. We want to be exalted just like Satan. And now Paul goes on 
We see that, that we're not only influenced by and subject to these outward spiritual forces of evil, the problem is not just out there. The problem is very much inside of us. He says that apart from Christ, we're all depraved. We all, he says, live in the passions of our flesh and carry out the desires of the body and the mind and that we're by nature children of wrath. Here he's saying that the problem is, is not just out there, the problem is in us. All of us are inclined toward evil. We're all inclined toward rebelling against God's goodwill for his creatures. All of us are enslaved to sin. We are by nature. Our nature is being children of wrath. And the official term that we often use to sum up what Paul is describing here is, is total depravity. Total depravity, it, means, it, it doesn't mean that, that we're all as bad as we can be. It doesn't mean that we're all like just waiting for an opportunity to go punch someone in the throat or something like that. It doesn't mean that we're all Hitler. No, by, by God's grace, we're not as bad as we could be. But what total depravity does mean is that there's no part of us that remains unaffected by our fallen human nature. Spiritually, biologically, emotionally, mentally, and in every other conceivable way, we are fallen, sinful creatures. And we struggle with this, don't we? Because in contrast to Paul's bleak but, but accurate understanding of humanity apart from Christ, some of us have a very optimistic view of ourselves. We wouldn't say that we're spiritually dead. We wouldn't say that we're Satanists. We wouldn't say that we're controlled by sinful desires and passions. We wouldn't say that we're totally depraved. In contrast to that, many of us have a very high view of ourselves. We say things like, maybe I've made a few mistakes, but I'm basically a good person. We say things like, like yeah, I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so. We say things like, yeah, you know, I've made a few mistakes, but my intentions are good. God knows my heart. Have you ever said anything like that? Now hear me, statements and excuses like those reveal either a, a deep lack of self-awareness on our part, or they reveal a, a, a severe state of denial. It's kind of like that scene in, in Monty Python, you know what I'm, I'm talking about, Monty Python, the Holy Grail, or the Black Knight, he gets into a sword fight with King Arthur, you know, and and King Arthur cuts off both of his arms, and he says, it's just a scratch. Come on, fight me like a man. And then he cuts off both of his legs, and he, he says, it's just a flesh wound. Come back, fight me. And it's funny, because it's, it's so delusional and absolutely ludicrous, but just as ludicrous is viewing ourselves as good people who've just made a few mistakes. Or as, or as people with good intentions that don't always get it right. Or as being, us being morally superior to anyone else. Because we're not just good people that have made a few mistakes. And we're not uh, people who have made a few mistakes but have good intentions. We're not on any sort of moral high ground. We're rebels who have committed cosmic treason against our God and King and Creator. We're sinners who are enslaved to the passions and desires of our sinful nature. We're dead to the will and promises of our good and gracious God. This is the diagnosis that the Bible gives for us, for why we feel and think and, and live and live and behave the way that we do. The so-called mistakes that we make, they're, they're not just mistakes. Our, our sinful actions are not just kind of one-off inconsistencies. They're symptoms of the reality that, that Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 reveals. You know, you, you may be wondering why you've continued in behavior 
that you deem sinful or wrong or inexcusable. You, 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 you may hate some of the things that you do, but you continue to do them over and over and over again. Maybe you have uncontrollable anger and you hate it about yourself, but, but, but you throw fits of anger and you can't control it, you can't stop doing it. Or maybe, maybe you hate when people of the opposite sex are objectified and treated as though the sum of their worth is, is what they offer sexually to the opposite sex. But you keep secretly lusting or looking at pornography or, or objectifying them nonetheless. Or maybe you wish that you were a generous person. You really want to be generous and be known as a generous person. You really want to be known as someone who helps others. And, and you want to be generous with your time and your, and your money and your talent. But you continually spend all of your time and your money to selfish ends with no regard for others. Or maybe you're very generous with your time and your money and your talent. Maybe you're, very, maybe you're a very generous person, but you're filled with pride and you're constantly seeing if others measure up to what you think you are and how good you are. Whatever it is, it's merely a symptom of something much, much worse. I remember hearing about this man a while back who was having trouble with his vision. And uh, he, he was, I can't remember which eye it was in, but it was in one of his eyes. He was having trouble with his vision and it was starting to give him headaches and, and starting to bother him. And, and so he, he went to the doctor to have it looked at, thinking, you know, it's a, it's a relatively small issue. I'd just be remedied by getting some glasses or reading glasses or, or something like that. But to make a long story short, this relatively small issue was just a symptom of a much bigger problem. And it was that he had a brain tumor. The reality was much, much worse than, than the small symptom that he had. And if you're not in Christ here this morning, you, you may have walked in here thinking that you were basically a good person that just did some things that were not so consistent with your goodness sometimes. But what God is revealing to you in his word is that those not so good things that you do sometimes are not just not so good things that you do sometimes. They are symptoms of a much darker and much more serious reality. You are in a much more desperate situation than you even thought. There's something dark inside of us, and it affects every part of us. It taints all of our motivations. It twists all of our thoughts and feelings and actions and affections. Everything we do and say and think all come from this deep, dark place within us that seeks to exalt ourselves over God and at the expense of others that he's called us to love. And this darkness is what the Bible calls our sinful nature. It's sin. And what this means for us as we move on to the following verses to behold the good news of God's grace is that we cannot in any way contribute to our own salvation and redemption. It, listen, if salvation is not by grace alone, it's not happening. It's not happening. It's got to be by grace alone or we don't have anything to contribute. Dead in trespasses and sins means dead in trespasses and sins. And that's where the good news of Ephesians 2 comes in, because in all reality, our God, our creator, our designer, our king has every right to wipe us out and destroy us because of the pervasiveness and the prevalence of our sin. He has every right to judge us in his wrath and fury, but these two words come like glorious music to our ears, but God. Ephesians 2 verse 4, Paul says, but God being rich in mercy, 
because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, it's just in case you didn't catch it, let's say it again. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. Now quickly, there are three wondrous riches that I want us to see here in the good news of grace alone. First, it's this deliverance. We're delivered we're, we're dead in trespasses and sins, but look at this, even when we were dead in trespasses and our sins, God made us alive together with Christ. This is, this is this wonderful gospel treasure that we often refer to as being born again or, or regeneration. Those, those two words are words that we use to describe this sometimes. It's that although we are dead in sin because of the grace and cross of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are made alive and awakened to the glory and the goodness and the grace of God, to his will, to his promises. We're no longer dead to his will and promises, but made alive to them, to where we treasure them and long for them and, and, and love them. You might think of this story in John 11, where Lazarus, this, Lazarus is, is this friend of Jesus, and he becomes sick, and Lazarus dies. He, he, he literally dies, and they have a funeral, and they bury him. They do the whole thing, it's this whole ceremony, and they, they bury him, and, and they put this huge rock in front of the tomb. And then Jesus shows up. He shows up a little late. He didn't come when, when Lazarus was just sick. He, he came after Lazarus had died, everyone was very upset about this. They didn't understand why he postponed his coming. But then Jesus shows up, and he walks up to the grave, and he tells them to move this stone. And they say, you know, Jesus, I don't think we should move the stone. It's going to be stinky. It's going to stink. But Jesus says, move the stone. And so they move the stone, and, and Jesus calls out and says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus gets up and he walks out of the grave and they take all of his stinking grave clothes off. And he's made alive through the power, of the voice and grace of Jesus Christ. And that is the story of every Christian. That's the story of you were dead, but God made you alive together with Christ. And this is solely, only, exclusively an act of God's free grace. Like, you, you didn't cooperate with this grace. You, 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 didn't, you didn't cooperate with God to save yourself. You didn't work together with God to save you. You were dead, and by God's gracious divine action, you were made alive in Christ. Now, at the time of the Reformation in the Roman Catholic Church, they had a phrase that they would repeat rather often. It was, I think it was supposed to be somewhat encouraging, but it really wasn't at all. It's a Latin phrase, but the English translation of it basically just says this. To the one who does what is within him, God will not deny grace. To the one who does what is within him, God will not deny grace. Grace was seen as this sort of a, this thing, this, this substance that helps you kind of finish the race. It, it, it kind of helps you finish what you've already started. You know, you could think of it kind of like an afternoon cup of coffee that helps you finish your work day. Like, you're already doing what you need to do. You're almost to the finish line. You're not quite going to make it, but, but, man, you get a nice hot cup of Folgers coffee, and, and that wakes you up, and it gets you, 
to the end of your day just fine. And, and they saw that, that they, they thought that grace was this kind of substance that kind of helped you in your self-salvation project. Grace was this, this thing that God gives to those, this kind of substance, this uh, kind of a, a shot of energy that he gives to those who are in the process of saving themselves. And you know, it's, it's the exact same kind of idea that you often hear today, uh, this, this quote that you often hear today in Christian circles, God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who, that's just another way of saying uh, to the one who does what is within them, God will not deny grace. That's the exact same thing. God helps those who help themselves. As long as you're helping yourself, God will help you and get you the rest of the way. That's, that's, that's a, a recent survey revealed that 81% of those claiming to be born-again Christians think that is a Bible verse. They think God helps those who help themselves is a Bible verse. But I want to tell you, if that was the Christian gospel, that would not be good news at all. That is horrible news to those who are dead in sin. Because those who are dead in sin will not and cannot do what is within them because there's nothing in them to do. They are totally enabled to please, to love, to desire God in the first place. And so we don't need a shot of energy to help us in our self-salvation project. We, 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 a shot of energy doesn't do a cadaver any sort of good. We need resurrection. We need deliverance. Because of our, our deadness in sin and bondage to sin, there's no merit, there's no initiative, there's no effort on our part to acquire this wonderful gift. It's not a result of works. We do nothing to earn this or to deserve it. We are delivered from death and sin by grace and grace alone. But that's not all. Keep reading. Because we're not only delivered... We're also declared righteous by grace alone. It says in verse 6, God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now remember where you were before. Dead in trespasses and sins, in the grave, hopeless, helpless. We were children of wrath, sons of disobedience. But now look at this new position we've been given. We're in the same position as Jesus Christ. We're in the same position as the perfectly righteous son of God. Jesus, he has never sinned. Jesus is perfectly righteous. He's the kind of human that God created us to be in the first place. He's, he loves perfectly. His motivations are pure. He, he is, he's loved and, and favored and treasured by God the Father and has been for all of eternity. He, he is love manifested. He is love incarnate. He is love come to us and showing us the, the perfect righteousness of God the Father. And look, We've been given the same position as Jesus. We are in him. We are seated with him in heaven. Our position is the same position of Jesus Christ. If you've been around for any amount of time, you've, you've heard us talk about our union with Christ around here. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It means we believe that Christians are those who are one with Jesus Christ. Christians are those who are made one with Jesus Christ. And one of the closest examples that we have of this and that we often use as an analogy is marriage, the, the union of marriage. Marriage is this covenant relationship wherein we share oneness with a person. And so often we, we use marriage as an analogy for this union. In fact, the reformers often use this analogy 
uh, of, of marriage to illustrate this truth that we are made one with Jesus. And Michael Reeves, in his wonderful book, Rejoicing in Christ, he picks up this story to illustrate the relationship between Christ and the church. It's the story of a marriage, a story in which a great king marries a poor girl of ill repute. This great king who represents Jesus, this great king who's, who's the king of over this, this entire kingdom, and, and then he marries this girl of, this poor girl of ill repute representing us. And she's poor, she's, she's a prostitute, she's unwanted, and yet this king comes to her and he lifts her out of her poverty and her filth and her shame and he calls her his beloved bride. And at their wedding, they would exchange vows. They, they would exchange vows at their wedding and, and at their wedding, she would say to him, listen, all that I am and all that I have, I give to you. And at that moment, he would take all of her debt and poverty. He would take all of her shame, her reputation, her criminal record. And then he would say in response, all that I am and all that I have, I give to you. And at that moment, she would take on all of his riches and his power and his position, all of his kingdom and his royalty and his wealth would be hers. And so it is with our great savior and bridegroom. He, he comes and puts on flesh and dies on the cross. And in doing so, he takes on all of our guilt and shame and suffering and death and wrath on the cross. But he shares with us his kingdom and his righteousness and his life and his position. And in our oneness with him, God declares us to be righteous with the very righteousness of Jesus. He takes off all those stench-filled grave clothes and he gives us the white robe of Christ's righteousness. And, and so that he, he, when he looks at us, he doesn't see our sin. He sees the righteousness and perfection of his beloved son. And because of this, he welcomes us as his own beloved children. We're given the same position before God as Jesus Christ. We're beloved by God, just like Jesus is beloved. We are treasured and cared for and delighted in, just as Jesus is. Which brings us to the third D in the good news of God's grace. Church, we're delighted in by the God of the universe. In fact, this is what motivates this great deliverance and salvation and declaration of righteousness in the first place. Look at verse four. Why did God ever do all of this in the first place? Because he's rich in mercy and because of the great love with which he loved us. And then also a, a little further on, and so that in the coming ages, the sort of purpose clause for all this, so that in the coming ages, meaning for all of eternity, in eternity future, so that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God not a result of works. Meaning that this is all purely a gift of God's abundant kindness and lavish grace. There's nothing in us that inclined God to choose us. There's nothing in us that caught God's attention or that earned his favor. It is entirely a gift rooted in the goodness and love and kindness of God. God, listen, God loves you because he loves you because he loves you. Like, and that's just who he is. It's just who he is. You, you might be thinking, I don't know. You, you don't know what I did. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I did this last week. 
That's true, I don't. But, but God knows, and his love for you, isn't that all based on you or who you are or, or what you've done? It has everything to do with him and his character and his goodness, which is firm and fixed, and it never changes. God is rich in kindness and love and mercy and grace, and he always has been, and he always will be. And he saved us so that he could show us that that is true of him for all of eternity. So that for all of eternity, we have to look forward to continually uncovering the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness. So that for all of eternity, we can drink deeply of this infinite fountain of God's goodness. You see, you see, it says that he is immeasurably rich in grace and kindness. He's rich in mercy. Like he's loaded. God is loaded. He's an unending fountain of divine love and favor and kindness, so much so that he takes those who don't deserve his love and kindness and who actually deserve the opposite. He takes us, children of wrath, sons of disobedience, and he makes us his own beloved sons and daughters in Christ. Church, we, we desperately need to understand and recover and treasure this message and tell the church about it and tell the world about it. Tell our city about this message. That God saves us by his free, one-way, unrelenting, unending, never-changing love and that he does so alone. There's nothing you can do to earn it or deserve it. But God, nonetheless, in an un, he's an unending, infinite fountain of divine love and mercy and grace. And because of who he is, he has delivered us and declared us to be righteous, and he delights in us. The world needs that good news. Our city needs that good news. Now, as we close, you might be wondering where good works come into play in all this. And I would tell you two things. Two things I want you to realize about good works as you are in a few moments going to be sent out to your various places of employment, your neighborhoods, your homes, your, your places of education to do good works. Okay? First, verses 8 and 9, you need to see that your good works add nothing to your salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Your salvation is done. It's finished by God's grace alone, through your faith alone, in and because of Christ alone. And faith is not a work. Faith is just simply coming to God with empty hands and receiving his gracious gift with empty hands. That's what faith is, and, and we'll get more into that next week. But all of this deliverance, this declaration of righteousness, this delight that God has in you, it's not a result of your works. It's not a result of your works. Your good works have no place in any of this, in, in, in your justification, your acceptance before God. Your good works don't add to it. Your bad works don't take away from it. it. It's sure, it's certain, it's fixed because God's grace abounds to us in Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean that good works don't have any place in the Christian life period. Notice what verse 10 says, and this is the second thing I want you to realize about your good works. Grace alone incites good works. Okay, grace alone incites good works. Verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
So listen, we are his workmanship, our salvation, our being born again, our faith, our repentance, our forgiveness, our justification, our sanctification, our coming glorification, only come, everything from A to Z, only come from God's free grace alone, his unrelenting, immeasurable, never-ending love. And that fuels good works in the people of God that adorn the gospel of grace. I love reading biographies and stories about the reformers. And, and one of the things that you notice about these men and women as you read their biographies and stories about them is that they, they worked very, very hard. They, they gave themselves to, sacrificially gave themselves to lives of good works. Uh, in fact, um, a person once asked John Calvin why the Reformation had been so successful in Switzerland where he lived. And his reasoning was very simple. He said, we outworked the, the bishops and priests of Rome. We outworked them. We worked really, really hard, and they did. They worked very, very hard. John Calvin and his, and his uh, cohorts trained thousands and thousands of pastors and church planters and sent them all over Europe and even uh, to Brazil. They, 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 uh, they sent missionaries. They, they, Calvin preached up to five or six sermons every week. The pastors in Geneva, Switzerland, visited the home of every citizen of the city at least once a year to make sure that they understood the gospel of God's grace alone, that they were well cared for. They fed the poor. They started hospitals. They clothed the naked. They visited the prisoner. They did all of this. And even when Calvin was on his deathbed, he, he asked uh, for those to bring, uh, uh, his, his assistants to bring him uh, paper and a pen so that he could continue to write commentaries on books of the Bible. He's dying. And, and a friend of his uh, visited him and said, brother, you're about to die. Isn't it time to just let go and rest? And listen to what he said. He said, would you have my master find me idle? You, you, just, you have to think about that for a moment. These men, these women, they believed that they were redeemed and saved solely by the grace of God and nothing but by the grace of God alone. But their good works didn't add to their salvation. They believed their, that, that their sin didn't take away from their salvation, and yet they worked really, really hard to honor God, to edify the church, to evangelize the world. Much harder than the Roman bishops and priests who believed in salvation by grace and works. And you have to wonder, why is that the case? And in a word, I would say gratitude. They were thankful. Thankfulness. Gratitude. Gratitude motivates good works much better than an exchange of reward for good works. Gratitude is the foundation for all genuine good works in the Christian life. When you grasp and sense, even if it's just a little bit, when you grasp and sense the greatness of the glory of God and the severity of your own guilt and the magnificence of God's grace that we've been talking about this morning, you can't help but be thankful. If God did it all, if Christ took your guilt and sin and raised you from spiritual death, and if you brought nothing to the table except for the, 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 the sin that made your salvation necessary, then there's nothing that you could hold back. There's nothing you want to hold back from him. When you view the glory and grace of God and Jesus Christ, you must say with the, that hymn writer, love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. I give myself completely to this grace. When you grasp grace alone, you can't help but respond by giving your life over for the glory of God and for the good of your neighbor. In Veritas, we live in a city desperate to hear this good news and to see it embodied in the life of God's people. 
And so may we be a people so gripped by our great need and so gripped by the good news of God's grace alone that we walk in good works and the good works that God prepared for us beforehand. Not to earn anything, but simply to adorn the gospel of God's free grace alone. To magnify it with our lips and lives. Let's let's pray together and ask the Lord for help in that.